I want to begin this morning, oh by the way, the title of the sermon is The Oneness of God and His Children. The Oneness of God and His Children. It's the thing that Jesus prayed for the night before He was sacrificed. But I want to begin by turning to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we'll go in um, chapter 1, uh, verse 6, and here we have the story of the angel um, explaining that John the Baptist was going to become, uh, was going to be born. And so we'll pick it up in verse 13 of Luke chapter 1, but the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, unto him... Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice in his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Remember that now. He says, Many of the children of Israel, he shall turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit, God will, and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. You've heard that before, haven't you? And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now he says, he refers to the people in this scripture as the children of Israel. Now, if you do a study, as I did, of the, wor- of the word children, and I just used the New Testament, um, basically you run out of paper to write it down. It's used quite, uh, quite a lot, and I just picked out a few references where the word children is used. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the children of God. And he says that, in, in continuing in uh, verse 44, he says that you may be called the children of God. He said the children are the good seed in the parable of one of the parables of the sowing of grain, the parable of the tares, the wheat and the tares. The children of God are the good seed. Now, when I was with you for the first Holy Day, and spoke here, I talked about how God refers to us in many ways. He refers to us in many ways. First fruits, that particular sermon, I was explaining that God calls us what? The salt of the earth. And I, he also calls us his sheep or his lambs, his little ones. But quite often, and actually most often, the scripture refers to us as his children. We are his children. And he said, the converted, Matthew 18 says, be converted and become as the children of God. Jesus referred to us as little children. He even in one place referred to us as babes, as babies. And so I wanted to start by explaining about being children. Now, there is another scripture here, and I don't think I marked it. So... Give me a minute to find it here. I think it's in 1 Thessalonians. Yes, in 1 Thessalonians. If you want to turn there, chapter 5. Very important scripture to all of us. You could give many sermons on the text of these first six verses. 
uh, and I have given many sermons on the text of these first six verses, but it says, Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. It's actually the return of Christ, but it's properly, more properly rendered, the age of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And this is what we remember about the coming of the Lord. We remember that he kind of sneaks up on the world, that it's a surprise. He comes as a thief in the night. But sometimes in the church, we forget what it says next, for when they shall say peace and safety like yesterday, Kim Jong-un, and what was the other guy, Moon? They held hands, kissed and hugged, and they both walked across the two borders. Four weeks ago, we were all thinking about, okay, if the, they start to launch the missiles, where will I hide? Some people were. You know, there was a big explosion in uh, the people that buy supplies on the Internet for surviving. Big explosion. They made a lot of money off of that, you know. And they have these communities which are built in um, old missile silos that you have to be a millionaire to buy one of those, getting ready for the nuclear war. But now, a couple days ago, those two guys, um, the guy that our president refers to as Rocket Man and the president of South Korea are kissing and hugging and put an end to a 60-year-long war. And I think of this scripture. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But notice what it says in verse 4. It says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. There's a reason that you're not. You're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So, if you think that the scripture about Christ returning as a thief in the night and surprising everyone applies to you, pay attention today, it does not. It is not going to be a surprise to you. If you are this word that it says there, children, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that they should overtake you as a thief. You are the children of light. You are the children of light. Again, a very important use of that term, children. You are the children of light. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. You know, I always give uh, certain scriptures in my sermons where I talk about how God is not going to do anything where he doesn't first reveal it to his servants. We know that's in the book of Amos. But... If you are the children of light, you have a big advantage over the world because you are going to know. You're going to know. I don't know how you're going to know, but you're going to know. You'll have sufficient knowledge to know it's coming. This is it. Get ready. He's coming. The age of the Lord is about to begin. And it starts with very dramatic events at his initial return. Sometimes we confuse those very dramatic events at his initial return with what happens during the whole age of the Lord, which we know to be the millennium, and what happens at the end of it, which we know to be the millennium. But it's the, this, we're living now in the age of man. Mankind is ruling mankind, but very soon now, pray sooner than we hope, or sooner than we think, I mean, it'll begin the age of the Lord. Thy kingdom come. But where else do we see scriptures like this? 
like I just read in Luke. Well, we see it in Malachi chapter 4 at the end of the Old Testament. But let's go there. I want to read that whole chapter. It's a very short chapter. It only has like, what, six verses. He says, Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, they that do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and will leave them neither root or branch. And we read that again in Peter, where he says that the world will eventually be burned up. But unto you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. Notice what he says here in verse 4, very often misquoted scripture. He says, Remember you the law of Moses, my servant. And that's where the world likes to stop when they're talking about it's not necessary to keep the law because that was the law of Moses. They forget to read the next part of, the, of that same sentence, by the way. Which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. So Moses was just the reporter. God was the commander. He commanded the law. Moses just told us about it. He just brought it to us. He was the reporter. God was the one who commanded it. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful age of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to the fathers, lest they come and smite the earth with utter destruction. Isn't that what we just read? Well, we're reading about John the Baptist. Well, this Elijah... There was the original Elijah. Then there was John the Baptist who was Elijah. And there is coming another Elijah. In both cases, they talk about it being a spirit that is in a person, is embodied in a person who is showing some leadership. When you pray, thy kingdom come, I suggest you also pray, Father, send us Elijah to prepare the way for the return of Christ. Send us Elijah, because that's how we're going to know. We're going to know because we're going to know who Elijah is. Elijah's going to be the one or the group or the spirit, whatever, that is preaching, turning your heart back to the Father by obeying him. Now, when you look at this chapter in Malachi, you know, there's often some discussion. I don't like to use the word argument, but there's discussion about what it really means. There was a day when we thought it says the turning of the hearts to the children and the Father had to do with families, Family kind of left out the girls and the mothers. (laughs) But it has to do with families. Nothing wrong with that. If you want to use it that way, it's a good application of the Scripture in principle. Then some people believe it's talking about turning the hearts of the people, the descendants of Israel, back to the fathers, the patriarchs. All the patriarchs of the Bible are forefathers in in, in in the Word, in the truth. The only problem with that understanding is they can't turn their hearts back to us. They're dead. They're in the grave. If you read the whole book of Malachi, it's a very short chapter, one of the shortest chapters in the Bible, you'll see the whole book of Malachi is about repentance, about turning our heart back to God. And so my take on it is that this is talking about getting our heart right with the Father. The title of the sermon I said is one, being at one with God, us and God being at one what Jesus prayed for the night before his crucifixion? Well, the whole purpose of Jesus coming, if I 
passed out a questionnaire and I said, write down what was the reason that Christ came. You could put a lot of answers on that card. To save mankind. You'd be right. Absolutely. And there's other things you could put in there. But what one of the main prime reasons that Jesus came was to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the Father and to reconcile us back to the Father. That's the whole point of everything that he did. Let's go to John 14 and verse 6. John 14 and verse 6. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So he is the mediator. He is the intercessor. He's not the goal. Jesus is not the goal. He's part of the goal, but he's not the goal. The Father is the goal. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If he had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him. And have seen him because Christ was a perfect embodiment and a perfect example of who the Father was. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Jesus said, How long have I been with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show me the Father? Well, a lot of folks in the world use this scripture to support a belief in the Trinity. Now, I was a Catholic for 19 years. I was an altar boy for nine of those years. And uh, at, uh, at my, in my youth, seriously considering becoming a priest. And uh, fortunately was distracted by worldly things, so I never followed through on that. And eventually studied the Bible and decided that there was a problem with doctrine in my old belief system and decided to... Uh, align my will with what the Bible said and uh, it was a lot different than what I'd been taught. And so, um, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, a closed loop, no place for you to get in there. You know, it's, it's a closed triangle. You can't be part of that family. It's, you're, you're like on the outside of it. And yet, when you look at the scriptures about the Father and Jesus Christ, every time you see them mentioned in the scripture, and I'm, you mark this down, brother, every time, every single time, it's only two. There's never three. That's kind of one of the big, most powerful evidences of that. Now, the Holy Spirit's important. There's no minimizing the importance of the Holy Spirit. But let me see if I can draw an analogy for you, okay? We all know we're all in the technical world. You have a laptop in your house. You know, and then there's a server somewhere. I work for 7-Eleven. I work on a computer all day long. The server that I tap into is in um, uh, Dallas, Texas. And so I have a Wi-Fi system in my house. The Wi-Fi system sends a signal to my laptop, and I'm connected with the server. Think of the father as the server, and the laptop as, as me. And the Holy Spirit as the signal between the two. I can turn the laptop on and it will run, but I cannot tap into that server unless I have a signal. If that signal's not there, I cannot tap into the server. And so the signal is the analogy of the Holy Spirit. That is how we communicate with the Father and with Jesus Christ. It's the signal that connects the server to the, to the user. And we're the end user. 
But I want to talk a little bit more about that. Okay, he says, yes, this is a season. We're in a season. We're always in some season in our Christian walk. And this is the time of the year where we've just completed an examination of ourselves. And salvation represents two things to us. Our salvation comes by faith. I no doubt of that. Things. We, we, we remember the suffering of Jesus Christ during the Passover. And then we do something right after that called the Days of Unleavened Bread where we get sin out of our life. Those two things demonstrate faith. One is the faith of Christ. Christ came. He lived a perfectly faithful life. He was faithful to the law. He never diminished the law. He represented it. It was the example that he lived. He taught the balance of the law. He taught us how to live the law. He was an example. And it was his perfect faithfulness which made him the perfect sacrifice for us. So we're saved by the faithfulness of Christ. His faith. We're saved by his faith. Well, then we have to have faith in Christ. How do we have faith in Christ? We have faith in Christ by demonstrating that He is Lord of Lord. He gets to say what we do. He is God. Almighty God. He and the Father are God. So we do what they tell us to do and we live according to their word and we get sin out of our life. And that is demonstrating our faith in God, in Christ, in the Father. So we have the faithfulness of Christ and our faith. We're saved by faith. The faith of Christ saves us. We, we could not do what he did. We're saved by the faith of Christ, and we demonstrate our faith in him by living according to his word. It was a time of examination we've just come through. What did we learn? Okay, it seems like I know, thinking of myself and the culture of the church, we get past the spring holy days and there tends to be a little bit of a letdown. I think we used to call it the post-feast depression for the Feast of Tabernacles. But what happens? Okay, we spent all this energy examining ourselves. What did you find? Stop and think for a minute. What did you find? Are you working on it? Did you find anything? If you're running a blank right now, uh, you may want to go back and, and go over that example again. Did you find something that you need to work on? And you should be working on it. Okay, you should have found something there. That's demonstrating faith in Christ. If we're not finding things during that process of examination and actually putting effort forward to overcome the deficits that we found, we're not holding up our end of the bargain. He was faithful. He did what he had to do. Now we have to be faithful and do what we should do. We need to become like him. So we should have found something. If you didn't, go back and look again. We should have found things to overcome and make sure we're diligent and overcoming. Why? Next plan, next step in the holy, the plan, the holy plan of God is the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not dwell with sin. That's why you have the faithfulness of Christ then the faith in Christ by getting sin out of our life so that you are clean and swept so that he can put the Holy Spirit into us to do great works that are coming forward. 
If we do our job, God's work can flourish in the church. So that's how the process works. Okay, I want to turn now to John 14. We're in John already. We're still, actually, we're still right in John. We'll go to uh, chapter 15 now. Notice what he says here. Is if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. I've said this before, I'm sure in Medina, that, by the way, hi Linda. (laughs) I forgot she's watching today. But the comforter, comfort is a compound word. It's an old, it's an old word. Come, as in, you know, go, come and go. And then fort, which is actually a contraction of an, an archaic word, forte, which means loud or strong. So comfort means come in strength, not give me a hug and let's be warm and fuzzy. That's good. But that's not the meaning of the word here. The meaning of the word is that this Holy Spirit will come into you in strength. I have not given you the spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Well, what's the power that he gives us? It's the Holy Spirit coming in strength into us so that we can accomplish his will in our life, the things that he wants us to accomplish. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Notice what that comforter gives us, the spirit of truth. This is not a world of truth, brother. I don't know who you're watching in the news, but our leaders are making a mockery of the Ninth Commandment. They always did to some extent, but now it's hyperdrive. We have relative truth. We have, you know, different versions of the truth. You know, I'm sorry. The Scriptures teach us in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah that we're living in a day when truth has fallen in the street. And it's not talking about what we believe. We like to say, well, that's a truth. I, I thank you, Father, for giving me the truth. The way I go to the Sabbath and the Holy... Yeah, that's all part of it. But the truth is what is not a lie. Our nation, our leaders of our nation are making a mockery of the Ninth Commandment. I'm pretty sure our Father is taking notice of that. You know, the church, in our conservative-leaning way loves to talk about the immorality of our nation. Brethren, lying is immoral. Lying is immoral. And our nation is deeply entrenched in dishonesty right now, making a mockery of the Ninth Commandment. Even the spirit of truth is what we get. And boy, do you need that when the world is being deceived in a way that if it were so possible to deceive the very elect, you need to know what's true and what's not true. How are you going to know that? Anybody who knows me know there's an answer coming shortly, but how are you going to know what's true and what's not true? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to help you. It's going to show you what's true and what's not true. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the, whom the world cannot receive because it sees Him not, neither knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and it will be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, let a little while, and the world sees me no more. But you see me because I live, you shall also see me. Verse 21. He that has my commandments and keepeth them. You're going to have them. You know I me. Mean? People have a plaque of the Ten Commandments in their house and they walk right underneath it and they go outside and they lie and they cheat and they steal and they commit adultery. How many people do that? 
You know, we have the commandments up on a lot of our buildings and, you know, government and all that. Some people get bent out of shape when they take them down. I don't because they're not keeping them anyway. It's a joke. Might as well take that plaque of commandments and put it someplace where people actually love them and, and respect them. Because right, right now, keeping them in those buildings is just making a mockery of what's written on them. He that keeps my commandments and keeps them, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. Everything resolves to the Father. It all resolves to the Father. Jesus is teaching us, brethren, down through the ages, how to be resolved and reconciled to the Father. That's what his whole mission was. And I will love him and will make manifest myself to him. He's going to show us the way. Now, Christ explains that there's no salvation without a relationship with the Father in Him. I've said this before. I think I said it in my very last sermon, that if you obey God, the world says, well, you're just trying to earn your salvation. And I say, no, I'm not trying to earn my salvation, but obedience does earn you something. And don't be shy about saying that. It does earn you something. What it earns you is a relationship with God. And God says, He doesn't save those whom he does not have a relation with. So, keeping the commandments earns you a relationship with the giver of grace, with the giver of salvation. And we'll see that in a minute. It's a vital understanding. Let's go over to John 17 now, and verse 2. John 17, verse 2. And Christ says, And you have given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Notice what it says here in verse 3. This is eternal life. You want to know how to have eternal life? Here it is. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice the Holy Spirit's not mentioned. That they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How do you know him? We read it, keeping his commandments. That's how you know him. There's a lot of good people out there doing good works who are not keeping his commandments. And Christ speaks to them, and we'll talk about them right now in Matthew chapter 7. And I say this lovingly to them, to anyone who's watching on the webcast, if you do not love the law of God... There's still hope as a, you know, a live dog is better than a dead lion. That's what it says in the Psalms or Proverbs. I mean, so as long as you've got breath in you, there's always hope. But here's what it says in verse 22 of Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? What does that mean, prophesied? Not tell the future. Haven't we taught in your name? If you drive... From here up to where we get on the turnpike, how many churches will I pass? Dozens? Dozens of churches? I live in the little town of Newcastle, Pennsylvania. We've got a church on every corner. Nobody goes there anymore, but church on every corner. All with a little group of people doing good works. Have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we taught out of your book? 
And in thy name and we cast out devils. Notice that they were able to even cast out devils. They had the ability to cast out demons. Remember when Jesus and his disciples were walking and they had individuals who were casting out demons and the disciples said, well, should we forbid them? And Jesus says, no, no. He says, if they're not against us, they're forced, let them go on. They were actually doing that. They were casting out demons. And in thy name done many wonderful works. How many wonderful works do the churches of the world, the secular churches, the Christian churches of the world, and even the non-Christian churches of the world, how many wonderful works do they do? Catholic charities. Marvelous. Marvelous group of people. Sisters of the poor. I mean, amazing what they do. And here's what Jesus says to them. Verse 23. Then I, Jesus, will profess unto them, I never knew you. The Christian world says you've got to know the Lord. You've got to have the Lord in your heart. You got, all you need to do is just know the Lord. You don't have to obey anything. Just know the Lord. Ah, that's right. But how do you know the Lord? You know the Lord by obeying Him. That's what the Scripture teaches. Because He says to all these people, did all these wonderful works, He says, I never knew you. Get out of here. Depart from me, you workers of, notice it, iniquity, sin. You sinners. What were they sinning? What were they doing wrong? They had a good heart. They tried to live according to the Sermon on the Mount, except the part where it says, Obey me, the Sabbath and the Holy Days. Brethren, you come here because, well, you fill in the because. Lots of reasons why we come here. But if you're just coming here because it feels good and you don't recognize that you are obeying the Almighty God, you're coming here to know the Lord. You remember that that's a part of what you're doing. You know Him. And when you know Him, He knows you. And He says He bought and paid for you with His blood. And you know what? He doesn't leave His possessions out in the yard to rust away. He takes care of the stuff that's His. Did you ever find a tool out in the yard that was all rusty because someone dropped it? You know, Jesus doesn't do that. He takes care of the things that He owns. He takes care of His tools and you're one of his tools. He bought and paid for you with a huge and heavy price. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house on a rock. James chapter 4 shows the process that we need to be involved in all of our lives. It's a matter of saying, I am the Lord your God. Therefore, that's how the commandments begin, right? I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you will do this, you will not do that. I am the Lord your God. If you get that much, if you can be in submission before that first sentence, I am the Lord your God, and recognize that we must submit ourselves to His authority and spend our life understanding how to reconcile our will to His, how to align our will with His, everything else follows a whole lot easier. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, notice it, and he will flee from you. Not just walk away. He's going to run away. That's a neat, that's a neat scripture, right? He's going to run away if you submit yourself to God. How do you do that? Well, when you're having a bad thought, when you're having a bad moment, sing a hymn in your mind or sing it out loud. Or start to praise God. Think of the five 
things that really went well in the last five days and thank them for that. And I guarantee you the bad thoughts will go away. Ask me how come I know that. Because I do that. I do that. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Isn't that neat? I think that's neat. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. He will lift you up if you humble yourself. The sight of obedience does not earn us salvation. Jesus was the one who was obedient. He was the one who was faithful. The faith of Christ saves us. And we demonstrate our faith in Him by humbling ourselves before Him and living as best we can according to His Word. The faithfulness of Christ is where the salvation comes from. That It does it for us. But getting sin out of our lives move us moves us in the direction toward God and more importantly, Him toward us. A relationship of knowing one another. That's what obedience does for us. It brings us into a relationship. If you, know, if you are moving closer to the Father, interesting sentence I think I'm going to give you here. If you are moving folk closer to the Father, you know that. If you are not moving closer to the Father, chances are you don't know it. You're being self-deceived. Isn't that interesting when you think about it that way? If you're moving closer to Him, you know you are. Because you sense the differences in your thinking. You sense the differences in your life patterns. But if you are not moving closer to Him, you don't really sense it. You're just being deluded. Slowly being deluded. Slowly being folded into the world to the spirits that are out there there's lots of spirits out there masquerading as even holy spirits satan doesn't appear as a devil he appears as an angel of light he appears as a the warm and fuzzy guy you know we are moving toward the father and him toward us if we do what he says to do submit ourselves and we are one of the holy days Growing to be at one with Him. The Father. Through the work of Christ. In us. John 17 now. Back to John 17. In verse 20. I just read this for Passover. I'm sure you did. Maybe many times. Neither, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That is every human being who tries to live according to the word of God, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be, they may be made perfect in one. The whole purpose... It was on his mind the night before he was crucified. The whole purposes of his work was that we be reconciled to the Father, be made at one with the Father. Now, there is a section in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the, by the Hebrew people the Shema. And this is, it is a foundation of our belief. A foundation of of the purpose of Jesus' work. 
I'm going to attempt today to recite this for you in Hebrew. Bear with me. I'm Polish, not Hebrew. So it will have a bad accent if you understand Hebrew. I don't, does anybody know Hebrew in the audience? Anybody? I know Wayne knows a lot of Hebrew. But he's not here today, so I'm good, right? Okay. And it, it, follow. It, here's what it says there in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 to 3. It says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elhimnu Adonai Echad Baruch Shiim Kvod Mekuto Leolem Vaed Faavataat Adonai Elohika Bako Lavavka Avko Navshika Avko Emodika Vihaya Had Varim Haile Asher Onukai Mitzaka Haom Alavavika Vishinamta Lavanika Vidibarta Baam. That's what the Hebrews recite every day is known as the Shema, and it says, Behold, the Lord God is one. It's, it's the foundation of what Christ was teaching us in that prayer that he gave the night before he was crucified, that we need to become one with the Father, as he is one with the Father. It is the greatest example of like-mindedness in the universe. We are to become like-minded as the Father is like-minded. Now some try to twist the concept of one to support the idea that God's a trinity, a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, And as I said already, as you look at all of these passages, all of them, Genesis to Revelation, you will always see that it's the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son. Let's look at an example in 1 John 22. 1 John 2.22 And John actually explains that you've got it wrong if you don't understand it this way. So John chapter 1 1 John chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 22. Well, let's back up to verse 20. But you have an unction from the Holy One. Here we are talking about the the Spirit that comes from the Father. And you know all things. You know the truth because you have the Holy Spirit. I have not written to you because you don't know, but because you do know. And that no lie is of the truth. Notice verse 22. Who is a liar that he that, notice it, denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist that denies, notice it, the Father and the Son. So did I just say that the Trinity is the spirit of the Antichrist? I'll let you answer that. Let me read it again. Who is a liar, but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denies the Father and the Son. There it is. 1 John 4, 3. Every Christian denomination says that Jesus was a man, that He came in the flesh. And they give varying degrees to His divinity, whether He was part of a trinity or you know, what divinity He had. Of course Jesus was divine. 
He was flesh, but he was divine. But he never used his divinity, other than the working of the miracles, to mitigate his own suffering. He didn't mitigate his suffering on the cross. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they have God, because many false prophets are gone into the world. Hereby we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Does that mean that because they say he was a man that they're of God? Let's go a little further. And every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh... Wait a minute. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of the Antichrist whereof you heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. Notice what it says next. You are of God, little children. Where's children? How do we know the difference? Okay, let's take a look at the Trinity for a minute. Christ on the cross dying. If the Trinity was true, is true, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all somehow one, like a drop of water. You put your finger on it, it breaks into three beads, and you push it back together, and it becomes one bead of water. That's the description that I heard made about 20 years ago. Is that right? Well... That means that when Jesus died on the cross, he was still two-thirds alive in the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Father. And he never really died like a human being died, which means he wasn't really flesh, was he? What did we just read? The Bible said, if you don't preach that Jesus was flesh as we are flesh, flesh all over like Rover, if he wasn't flesh like you and I are flesh, it is the spirit of Antichrist. Brethren, when Jesus died on the cross, he died. He was dead all over. He died. He was gone for that brief period of time. And those that say that he was two-thirds alive are giving us a doctrine that the Bible speaks of in nefarious ways. Now, he came in the flesh and he died. Now, John 10, verse 17, let's go there. Look at this a little bit further. John 10 now. Not 1 John, but John 10. He says in verse 15 of John 10, As the Father knows me, and Father's involved here, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Notice the oneness, how important it is. Here it is there. Jesus is saying there are people out there that you don't think are first fruits that are first fruits. Have you met them? You know, God judges us by what? By our heart. By our willingness to obey. There are some people that maybe never heard the truth but yet they have the right heart that, boom, as soon as they know the truth, it'll be no problem for them. That's kind of what he says, doesn't he say? He says, other sheep I have out there which are not of this fold I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Brethren, if we're the first fruits, if Jesus was the first of the first fruits, and we're part of the first fruits, why would you use the term first fruits if there's not second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh fruits? There are going to be others. They will come. They will come at some point. 
Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Sounds like Jesus is doing that all by himself. It kind of it makes you think it supports the Trinity idea. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. And I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Notice where he got this power from. This commandment I received of my Father. In other words, the Father set it up that way. Without the Father setting it up that way, Jesus would still be in the tomb. The Father is the one who set it up that way. I want to notice the very end of the plan now. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, there is an order, as I said, first fruits, second fruits. Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Jesus purges the earth of sin puts down all authority and all rule and all liars and all beasts and all sinners. They're all gotten rid of and He delivers the kingdom up to the Father. It has been purified. For He must reign till He puts all enemies under His feet. And the last enemy, the enmity which comes from sin is death. And He puts that enemy also into the lake of fire. For the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Christ turns over the kingdom to the Father. The whole plan of Christ ultimately resolves to the Father. If you look through the Scripture, the whole plan points back to the Father. The work of Jesus was not an end to itself. It was a process that brings us into reconciliation to the Father. Remember what Malachi said. Remember what it said in Luke about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Turn our hearts to the Father. That's what you're doing, brethren, when you're overcoming sin. You're overcoming sin. You are turning your heart to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ in you. The faith of Christ made the way possible. The faith in Christ completes the process. You're turning your heart to the Father. That is the work of Christ in us. Brethren, he said on the cross, Eli, Eli, Labath, Sabachthani, and the Father turned away. And I think I shared with you that I now understand that that was not a surprise because he says, why have you forsaken me? Yet Jesus Christ was the author of the 22nd Psalm where those same words are written. So he had to know that was going to happen. And when he said that on the cross, he was just, pretty much announcing the actual moment of the payment of the penalty of being separated from the Father being paid. And it was not a pretty thing for him. It was very difficult. So he cried out in agony and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment when the Father did separate himself from Christ and it was not a surprise. It was just that Christ was dreading it just like he was the crucifixion itself when he says, Father, if it be possible to take this cup away. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He submitted himself to the Father. And he aligned his will with the Father. They had such incredible love for one another 
Their love was so strong, it overcame. It transcended the need to have a perfect alignment of wills because Jesus said, not my will, but your will. That's how strong his love was for the Father. Everything reconciles to the Father. One final scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's the final scripture. (laughs) In verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation to the Father. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then are we ambassadors of Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in God's stead, be you reconciled to God. Reconciliation, justification, sanctification, faith of, faith in, all that's kind of confusing. John Acts 5.32, or I should say brethren, Acts 5.32, if you obey me, I will give you my Holy Spirit. John 16.13, and it will leave you into, lead you into all truth. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them unto babes. It isn't that complicated. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to bend your will to the will of the Father, if you want to be reconciled to the Father through Christ, brethren, work on obedience. Everything in this world is going to try to talk you out of that important Sure, which mankind has given to accomplish in this lifetime. Good to be with you. We'll hang around in fellowship as long as we can.